This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Dan from Shares and I'm joined by Laura from AJ Bell. Hi. This week we're answering your first time buyer questions, talking about whether you should be worried about liquidity in your funds and why you may see fewer adverts for mini bonds. And we're joined this week by Ryan Hughes from the investment team at AJ Bell. Hello. So first, we've not done a markets check-in for a while. So Dan, what's been going on? I think the themes have been record high markets and politics, which is... Politics? No, I haven't seen anything like that. Something (laughs) happening? (laughs) So um, we've had the manifestos have been published for some of the parties, like Conservative and Labour, and actually they've had no real major impact on on sort of share prices at all, really. I think lots of people kind of knew all the big sort of statements and policies that that these parties were um, putting at the centre of their... Of this or their big general election push. What's quite interesting, though, is that the FTSE 250 index hit a 15-month high. And I think that's the, the markets like some certainty. Um, the polls at the moment still have um, the Conservative Party in the lead. I think if the, if the Tories get in, um, the, lots of investors are thinking, OK, I kind of know what direction they're going to be taking us in. Um, and then that sort of certainty is really comforting for the markets. That's why so the FTSE 250 contains lots of UK-focused companies in there. That's what that, that index is up. In the US, stock markets have hit record highs again. I think that's down to optimism over Chinese trade relations. We've also had a new wave of M&A with Charles Schwab buying TD and LVMH buying Tiffany's. Um, but on just looking at UK stocks, so we've had Pets at Home have issued um, very good statements. Their turnaround is going very well and their shares were rocketing up. Um, another sort of turnaround candidate is Royal Mail. Unfortunately, they're a bit behind schedule and they're warning that their next financial year... Is that a good pun there, that they're behind schedule? The oh, post is delayed? Yeah. You didn't even intend that, did you? <laughs> <laughs> um, so their shares took a massive hit because they, they were warning that they may not make any money at all in their UK business next year. Um, and De La Rue, the banknote printer, they, I mean, they had a catastrophic week where they sort of said, if things continue to go badly, they're not sure they're going to be able to continue existing as a business. Um, they've got lots of debt problems. Trading's not been very good, very competitive market. I think if you think about their business, um, you know, if we're heading towards a cashless society, um, is there a need for a banknote printer? I mean, there is today, but investing is about looking at the long term and what might happen. So, um, yeah, they, they would probably get sort of the, the wooden spoon award of the week. Um, <laughs> and finally, there was a, a small cap stock that caught my eye was Cakebox. Um, they're, they're a franchise. Well, I'm interested already. <laughs> yes, they do egg-free cakes and they're, they're a franchise business. So their, their pre-tax profit in their half year was up by 27%. And that, that gave the shares a real big lift. Um, it's personalised cakes. I've never had one, but um, I don't know if anyone... There's a shout out there if anyone wants to no, send us one of these. We're willing one, to but, sample. But yeah. I do have a good Dillaroo fact oh, yeah, uh, yeah. for you, which is the Dillaroo old factory has turned into the Bombay Sapphire Distillery. So if you're into your gin, you can visit the distillery and see where Dillaroo used to make the banknotes. That sounds like an amazing day out. Mm, it's a right. great day. Well, that's our January sorted mm, then. Absolutely. And also see if there's any banknotes just lying around that they left. There could well be. <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked before on the podcast about 
bonds offering yields that look too good to be true. So the regulators now revealed um, yesterday, in fact, that it plans to ban marketing of certain bonds, so so-called mini bonds. So we talked before about how there was just a swathe of advertising around ISA season of all of these kind of mini bonds that offer the the great thing of high returns but really safe money and and we talked about how that was slightly dubious but so what's the regulator done now Dan? So the regulators come out and said from January for 12 months there's going to be a ban on marketing to retail investors of certain types of mini bonds and I guess we should perhaps explain what a mini bond is so it's, it's kind of like an IOU so you lend money to a company they use that money either to invest in their own business or they may make it use it to make investments and you're you're locked in for a fixed period and you get a, a fixed rate of return which you know at the start and hopefully at the end of that period you get your initial money back uh, fortunately you can't trade these bonds so people have been getting excited about these high rates of interest so i give you examples of say seven or eight percent is perhaps a typical rate on some of these bonds which when you compare it to current cash rates at the moment which are kind of more like one percent yeah you so can see why it's quite appealing for for some savers absolutely and people are sort of, particularly if you type in to google you'll get like high, high yield bond or something you'll see quite a lot of these adverts for them um uh, there was one actually just before we were recording this podcast today they were offering remarkable rates of interest like 10 percent 11 percent on um various well-known funds and banks and it all and it all looked a bit suspicious and if you type the company's name offering these bonds into the financial conduct authorities register they don't exist and then this is the problem you're getting loads of businesses which aren't regulated pretending that they are and so the, the fca has come out and said that they're really worried um because they've worked out that this the amount of money that consumers have got in speculative illiquid securities per person is over £25,000. So the people that are invested in these things are invested big. Mm. So if something goes wrong, it will really hurt. And we've seen some signs of this already. So we had um, London Capital and Finance, which we talked about on the podcast before. So that collapsed and and that was selling these kind of mini bond type products. Well, yeah, I mean, their product was advertised as like a fixed rate ISA. It actually turned out to be... Um, these mini bonds and what's happening obviously that the business has collapsed and at the moment investors have lost everything they're kind of hoping they might get 10 or 20 percent of their money back but um, what I think is really happening is that the London capital finance example has put it into the spotlight that there are some sort of dubious activities going on but actually I think the regulator should have been onto this already they're a bit late on this one and I don't know if you read the press coverage on it there's quite a lot of criticism from market commentators saying um, this is too late you should already be on this um, what's interesting though i think is that they uh, they brought in this ban um in a kind of in terms of the processes involved in it much more rapidly than they previously do so normally there's kind of a consultation when they talk about things that they might do and then there's a whole consultation period and then they come back and that process um ends up being quite drawn out and often rightly so because it means they can consult on the changes they're going to make this was just a ban introduced no previous kind of warning or consultation on it so i think that's quite interesting but i think what is almost counter to that is the fact that the ban doesn't come in place until the start of next year so we've now got this period where you know it's going to be banned but it hasn't been banned immediately and that just feels almost a bit like free season for these mini bond providers who are just going to rush out and advertise stuff while they still can i think so i mean that's a very important point isn't it that coming so you've got 
pretty much all of December. If you're thinking about putting money in and investing it wisely, saving it wisely, you'd be really careful. Read all the small print and, and do check that the provider of any investment products that you are thinking about taking is regulated by the FCA. But also that you understand the risks that you're taking because lots of these are marketed as kind of, oh, it's it's kind of as safe as cash or it's cash plus. And actually, these are riskier than quite a lot of other forms of investing. I think I think for me, the, the old adage, if it looks too good to be true, it probably is, comes to the fore here. If you can get half a percent on cash in the bank, you can get 1%, let's say, on a government bond, you can get 4% on a high-yield bond fund. Each step you take is taking more and more risk and putting more of your money at risk. The higher the rate of interest that someone's offering you, the higher the risk is you might not get your money back. Uh, And so do not be lured in by these very, very attractive, uh, seemingly attractive rates. Understand the risks that come with them. Are they regulated, like you say? Uh, and, and accept that you may not get your money back. Just because it's called a bond doesn't mean there's any guarantee you'll get your capital back at the end of it. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a, a restaurant company called Chilango, which is going through some financial restructuring at the moment. And that they issued this thing called a burrito bond earlier this year, offering 8%. And they had nearly 800 people um, put money in. And, and they only wanted a million pounds, but they found that the demand was so much, they, they actually issued three times that. So we're now in a situation where um, investors who'd put money in that bond, at the time, they, they were looking at sort of profit forecasts that were provided by Chilango. Um, and the reality is that its earnings are nowhere near its forecasts. Um, the business is, is you know, struggling. I mean, it sort of shows that just because someone gives you a piece of paper and saying, look, here's a potential projection and the line is always going upwards in terms of potential returns, you don't always believe it. You you must always make decisions yourself and weigh up, you know, should I believe this? Um, and be a bit more, I don't know, cynical or a bit more investigative, I think, in, in terms of your investment preparation. I think for, for all of us, if we were lending money to a friend, we'd probably only lend money to our friends when we're pretty sure they're going to pay it back. Uh, and it's no different to lending to a company. We've covered the Neil Woodford Um, equity income saga enough on the podcast but the knock-on effect is starting to be seen on other funds now too so we've got mark barnett who's actually um, a former protege of neil woodford there's been some questions raised about his funds and investments in small companies and another fund manager nick train has also seen some queries raised about how easily he'd be able to sell his investments if lots of people wanted to get their money back out of his funds so ryan this sort of seems to be a bit of a sort of storm brewing in the world of um, fund managers. Should we be worried about what's going on? Uh, I don't think it's a case of being worried, but I think as ever, it's a case of understanding what you've bought uh, there. If you're investing in a fund, uh, you should be investing on a long-term view. Uh, and if you need, you think you might need your money back in any short period, uh, then, then think very carefully about what the underlying assets are. Uh, and so these managers you mentioned, you know, absolutely, as you invest in companies down the cap, away from the mega caps, liquidity is very, very different and always has been. And that's one of the reasons why mid cap companies and small cap companies over the long run typically offer better returns is because you're being rewarded for the fact that they aren't as liquid. Now, these managers are investing in these types of stocks. Uh, Nick Train focuses on larger companies, but the fund is very big. Perhaps we'll come back to that point in a second. Mark Barnett has got a spread of large, medium and small companies. Uh, and, And yes, if everyone wanted to withdraw their money in one day, that would cause a headache. 
as it would for many, many managers. But it's about, as an investor, understanding where they invest, understanding the investment strategy, and thinking about what's the liquidity profile of that underlying fund. But how easy is that for the average investor to find out? I mean, we talk about liquidity and liquidity profiles of funds, but if you're kind of an average DIY investor, what can you get that information from the fact sheet? Or Yeah, I mean, lots of fact sheets will give you the spread between large, medium and small companies. And so if it's a multi-cap strategy, then you do want to think about how exposed it is. I agree with you, it's very difficult to get good information. Looking at just liquidity uh, in its own right is only one question uh, that, that you need to need to answer. There are others there, but getting this information is difficult. But ask the fund manager. Write to the fund manager and ask the question, what's the liquidity profile of the fund? How much can you sell in a week? How much can you sell in a month? There's no harm in asking these questions and getting, getting the answers back. But I agree with you, the information is not readily available uh, and published. It may, maybe that will change. Maybe one of the things that will come out of uh, the, the regulator reviewing the whole Woodford situation is that maybe fund managers will be forced to publish their liquidity profile. So I was at a presentation the other day with Jupiter Asian Income and, and they were talking about how they'd had some stress tests done um, and they thought that a very large percentage of their portfolio could be liquidated in three days. Um, and they were sort of hoping that perhaps the industry would... Um, go down this route, more, more stress tests to see, a bit like we see stress tests on banks, can they survive in harder economic times? Um, you would hope that the fund industry too would go down that route. I mean, have you seen anything like that, Ryan? Yeah, I mean, the, the FCA has written to all asset managers post the Woodford events, reminding them of their, their responsibilities and reminding them that liquidity management is a very important part of their day job. So I think it's been made crystal clear uh, to fund managers that they need to have a good focus on liquidity but we shouldn't get away from the fact that you know, there are opportunities that exist in illiquid companies small companies by their very nature are illiquid but that doesn't mean they're not good investments uh, you need to understand the liquidity if you're investing in your pension you're taking a 20-year view um, having exposure to potentially illiquid investments is probably a very wise move because you can capture the illiquidity premium, as it's known, i.e. you get rewarded for illiquidity over the long period of time. If you want your money back in the next year, maybe that's a very different situation. So I think it's about marrying your investment objectives and your time horizon with the assets that you want to invest in. But also, isn't there... I mean, we come back to this issue around the fact that funds offer daily liquidity but actually couldn't liquidate all of their assets in a day. And so, yes, you might be someone investing in in, a, in illiquid assets in your pension fund and quite happy to hold that for 10 years. But if, as we saw with the Woodford situation, if lots of other people suddenly want to get all of their money out, then even if you don't want to get your money out, you can get clobbered by that, can't you? You can. And if we worked on the, that principle, then every fund, no fund would ever invest in equity because if you if you wanted to provide perfect liquidity to your investors every single day and say let's today assume all my investors want my money back you wouldn't be able to buy a share mm -hmm. you wouldn't be able to buy a bond because the bond market can be very illiquid too mm. so every fund has an element of illiquidity in it some are just that's just greater in some funds than others but if we yeah, if we worked on the principle of perfect liquidity then we might as well all sit in cash forever and I think with with the Neil Woodford situation was um, his performance perhaps wasn't going too well and people were starting to ask for their money back so he's having to um, sort of sell certain the larger holdings because they were easy to sell to raise some cash um, and it sort of looks like 
Mark Barnett, who uh, for some of his funds has potentially had to go down that route. Um, of course, if you start selling sort of the larger stuff, then that perhaps exposes um, your portfolio to show it's got an increased weighting to sort of smaller companies. I know that the, the fund research group Morningstar had issued a report with some concerns that it was that Barnett's fund was now containing more small caps than it was. And it's probably worth just a, a quick disclaimer that um, that Mark Barnett's funds are uh, an investor in AJ Bell as well. So just, just to clarify that link. But I mean, in terms of um, what's happening with Barnett now, he's come out, he's admitted, yes, he's, he said, yes, I'm sorry, performance hasn't been too good, but you do have to consider he is a value investor and that's not been in fashion. So is it, do you think he, he, it's just not the right time for, for Barnett? It's just not in favour rather than he's done something wrong? Yeah, I mean, he's seen great value in companies that are focused towards the domestic UK economy. And clearly post-Brexit, the market has been focused on overseas earners. As the currency has weakened, overseas earning has been boosted and therefore everyone's wanted to invest in, in those companies that derive lots of earnings from overseas. Barnett's seen value in companies that derive their earnings from the UK. They've been shunned by investors for three years. Uh, and also as a, fa- as, a, as a function of that, it's actually pushed him down the cap scale as well because the biggest companies in the UK most of them are overseas earners. So if you if you want to be focused on the domestic UK economy, you actually, by default, end up investing away from the mega caps. So I think it's partly style. I think he's been the first to admit, actually, yes, he has had... He's probably some of those small companies got a little bit too big, and he's addressing that in his portfolio. Uh, from my perspective, I do see it as very different to the Woodford situation. The, the Invesco funds run by Mark Barnett look nothing like Woodford equity income at all in when you actually analyse the underlying portfolio and the amount they've got in large companies, medium-sized companies and small companies. So I think the situation is very different. So an extension of the liquidity discussion, I think, is also when does a fund become too big? So the Nick Train fund, Linzel Train UK Equity, is £9 billion in size and invests in a very concentrated manner. And I think it's also important for fund managers to recognise when you've taken so much, so many assets, does it change the way you're actually investing? Does it mean you can't access smaller companies anymore? Not that Nick Train does, but Mark Barnett does. You know, does. Does it mean that you can't own as much of a company as you wanted to because your fund is too big? That's a really important, uh, another way of looking at the liquidity problem. Because the Nick Train thing is slightly different. It's that he's got such a large fund and he invests in such few holdings within that. So rather than having 100 companies he invests in, he invests in about, what, 20 odd? Yeah, 20 to 25. Um, So it means that to to sell those positions, he has such large positions that it would be quite hard to sell, right? Absolutely. So it's a slightly different thing because he's not investing in in small companies. So it's a liquidity issue in a different way. Yeah, the issue is the same, is how long does it take to sell those companies? And and even, even when you look at large companies, when you've got very big positions, it might take a little while to sell. I mean, obviously, we're not talking weeks or months, but we might be talking a few days. So large cap investing can have exactly the same problems as small cap investing uh, if you're trying to dump large amounts of shares in a short period of time. I know with Fundsmith, which is like one of the UK's most popular funds, um, they said to me that they're constantly getting asked this question about um, you, your funds become so big um, what does that mean when you're sort of investing in companies? Are you taking such a big stake? And they went, actually, no, because the, the type of companies we invest in are gigantic anyway. So we're still only owning a very small sort of percentage of, of a business. So they don't see it there because their remit is very large businesses. But you're, yeah. you're right. But obviously, at the same time, what that statement's telling you is if those types of companies that they like that aren't attractive anymore 
they're going to find it very difficult to move into slightly smaller companies. So Fundsmith say that they don't invest in companies uh, that are below two billion in size, which is pretty big. Mm. Uh, and one of the reasons why they launched the Smithson Investment Trust uh, was to access some of these uh, opportunities that they couldn't access in the fund. So even there, there's a little message coming out of Fundsmith saying, we're finding it quite difficult, or the opportunity set that we're investing in in the fund is actually a little bit limited, which is not a problem as long as everyone knows that. So right now we've got our first time buyer Q&A. So you guys sent in questions you had about the help to buy ISA and the lifetime ISA and how they can be used to save for a deposit. So firstly for this piece we're assuming that you have kind of a base level knowledge of the help to buy ISA and the lifetime ISA. So if you don't then hit pause, have a quick read up on the kind of basics and then come back. Now Dan, fire away. Okay, so um, I think we'll start with can I pay into an ISA as well as a lifetime ISA? Yes, you can. So you can pay into a lifetime ISA the £4,000 a year and then you can, you'll can you have a remaining £16,000 in your ISA allowance um, and you can pay that into a cash ISA or a stocks and shares ISA um, at, in the same year. So if I've been saving into a help to buy ISA for around two years, I'm looking to purchase my first home in about a year. Is there any benefits in me transferring to a lifetime ISA or should I leave my money where it is? So a help to buy ISA has a smaller annual limit, so both offer the same government bonus, but the amount that you can save into a help to buy ISA each year is smaller. So if you had more money that you could put away, then transferring to a lifetime ISA would be beneficial. But if you open a lifetime ISA, you have to have it open for a year before you can use it to buy a property. So if you've got help to buy ISA at the moment and you think that you're going to buy in the next six months, then you can't transfer to a lifetime ISA because you wouldn't be able to use that money. If you think that it's probably going to be over a year or 18 months or two years or longer, then you're probably better transferring to a lifetime ISA. So when should you use a cash ISA um, and when to use an investment ISA? So it sort of depend on how much money you've got and how long you've got to invest? So it depends on quite a lot of factors. Um, I think how long you got is is an important one. If you think that you're going to buy in the next kind of six months or the next two years, then you probably want to keep it in cash. If you know that you're much further away from being able to buy a property, then um, you can invest it. But it's also about how much risk you're willing to take. So this is money that you're saving for your house deposit. Do you feel comfortable with that money going up and down in value? If you invest over a longer period of time, on average, you should get higher returns than cash but are you prepared to see your money fall in value potentially if, if markets go down so you need to think about that you could do a bit of both as well you could invest some of it and, and keep some of it in cash if you wanted to okay um what about using the lifetime isa and then renting out property is that allowed this is a big question that i get asked a lot so um if you're using a lifetime isa and you're intending to never live in that property and just you rent it out and use it kind of like a buy to let then you can't use the lifetime isa so the rules of the isa say that you have to occupy it and you have to live in it however a big thing that people want to do is to buy a property and then rent out so buy a two-bed property for example and rent out the second bedroom and then that helps cover some of their mortgage costs um that you can do um, under a lifetime ISA, so that's allowed and you'd still be able to get the bonus. The 
thing around whether you can ever rent that property out was quite woolly initially to start with and there weren't clear guidelines on it but there are now and um, basically HMRC says it will take a pragmatic view and it recognizes that people's life circumstances change so if you bought a property you lived in it for a couple of years and then your job moved overseas for example and you wanted to rent that property out rather than be forced to sell it then in those kind of circumstances it would be okay to rent it out. Okay. What about if I'm buying a property with my partner? Is this, can I still use the lifetime ISA? Yes, you can. And you can both use it. So the lifetime ISA, you can get a maximum bonus of £1,000 a year. If there's two of you that qualify as first-time buyers, then you can both set up an account and you can get £2,000 maximum a year. If your partner isn't a first-time buyer, then that's fine. You can still use it for the lifetime ISA for your half of it, but they wouldn't be able to. Okay, so I've already got a property with my brother that I rent out. Can I use a lifetime ISA? No. Mm. That was a very short answer, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> um, no, you're not allowed to have any interest in any other property. So whether that is something that you're renting out or whether that's something you've inherited, um, you're then not classified as a first-time buyer, so you wouldn't be able to use the lifetime ISA. Okay, and just finally, what happens if you've got a lifetime ISA and then actually inherit a property? So I think this one's slightly um, tricky and also see, feels a little unfair to me, but the rules are that if you... So say you open a lifetime ISA, you've been saving for a few years into that, and then you unexpectedly inherit a property, um, you then are not counted as a first-time buyer, so you wouldn't be able to use the lifetime ISA um, to buy a first home. So... It feels a little unfair because when you started out and on the kind of lifetime ISA journey and started out saving into it, um, you were classified as a first-time buyer. But it's as soon as you have any interest in any property, even if you inherited it and sold it immediately, you're then not classed as a first-time buyer. So then your money in that lifetime ISA would either have to stay in there and you could use it when you were older, so you could use it like to supplement your pension, or you would have to pay the exit penalty to get the money out to be able to use it for a house deposit. Wow, you know so much about the Lifetime ISA. That's my specialist subject. I'm really on mastermind, I think, for it. The geekiest mastermind ever. That's very good. And and just in case you want me to spoil the magic of how the podcast works, Laura did not have any notes for that either. All off the top of your head. Very impressed. I know. Well, let's hope I got it right. So thanks a lot for listening this week. As ever, if you have any suggestions for future topics or general comments, then do email podcast at ajbell.co.uk and remember you can also listen to us for various different platforms so on Spotify, on the iPhone podcast app, uh, on Podbean and you just search for Money and Markets there and we will see you next week Thanks, thanks very much Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. This week, we've discussed lifetime ISAs. A lifetime ISA is not for everyone. If you withdraw money before age 60, other than to purchase your first home, you will pay a government withdrawal charge of 25%. This may mean you get back less from your ISA than you paid in. Also, if you choose to save in a lifetime ISA, instead of enrolling in or contributing to your workplace pension scheme, you'll miss out on the benefit of your employer's contributions to that scheme and your current and future entitlement to means-tested benefits may be affected. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.